You're listening to the Growth Experts Podcast. So if you're looking to 10X your business by learning proven growth strategies, you're in the right place. During my interviews with top CEOs, entrepreneurs, and marketers, I dig deep to uncover the real strategies, hacks, and tools to help you achieve your goals. And I'm your host, Dennis Brown. Hey, everybody. If you're interested in learning how to leverage LinkedIn for your business, this episode is sponsored by my book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful LinkedIn Users. To get your free copy, just send a text to 44222 with the word seven habits. That's the number seven habits to 44222. Now let's get on with the show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. And today we have yet another amazing guest. His name is David Premer, and he is widely recognized as a thought leader in the area of sales and sales leadership, and has been published in the Harvard Business Review, MIT Sloan Management Review, as well as Forbes, Entrepreneur, and Inc. Magazine. He's led top-performing sales teams at high-growth startups and is a former VP of Salesforce, where he created the Sales Leadership Academy program, often referred to as the sales professor. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks so much for having me, Dennis. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you. Well, you're, you're like right across the border. You're in Toronto. I'm in Buffalo, so we're close. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you ever get down here when it's not Corona time? Yeah. <laughs> when we're not talking about the beer. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, you, know, it was, you know, Niagara Falls is always a good place to go with the family and the kids. So, yeah, not, not too far away most often. Love it. Perfect. Well, listen, you're the author of a book. By the time people are listening to this, the book will have probably released. And the book is called Sell the Way You Buy. Is that the, that's the correct title? Sell the Way You Buy, right? That's it. Yeah. Right? So if it's not released, it'll be released soon. But I have a feeling it's already on Amazon. I know he's done really well in pre-orders. So, you know, he's released that book. And today, just to give everybody a little bit of a, a little bit of a teaser, what we're going to talk about, we're going to take a little bit different spin, right? Because David has a, an interesting background that allows him to talk about sales from a different perspective, from more of the, the science side, right? The psychology side. And so today we're going to talk about how understanding, the importance of understanding how people actually buy, the science behind why people buy and how they make buying decisions. So that's what we're going to talk about. But give us a little bit of an intro, a little bit of insight into you, and then we'll dive right in. Yeah. Well, look, you know, I I kind of, I'm pulling a Bob Ross here and I say I'm a bit of a happy accident. Like most people who ended up in sales, I did not intend to, you know, to get into sales. I'm sure if for those of your listeners in the audience who are in sales, if you were to ask them, you know, how many of you thought when you were growing up, going through college, university, whatever you did, that you'd end up in sales? I'm sure no one would say, oh, not yes, me. not my not dream. Me. Doesn't make you popular at family reunions. So yeah, I started out, I was a research scientist. I was actually doing work in engineering, not even in kind of the psychology fields. Got into sales at the turn of the dot-com boom, like by accident, joined a startup. We grew that startup from 20 people to 700 people in a $100 million business. We IPO'd, we got acquired. And through that whole experience, I fell in love with sales. And so I kind of caught the sales bug. But because of my research scientist roots, I was always very curious about sales. Okay, like when I said it like this, the customer got it. When I said it like this, it went over their head. Or, you know, I also realized that over the course of time being in sales for so many years, working across startups and Salesforce, was that I didn't particularly like talking to salespeople. And, and as I did more research and read, I found that most salespeople feel the same way as I do. And so I said, well, there's got to be a better solution here. Like I love sales and people like to buy stuff, but no one likes talking to salespeople. 
the world of selling and buying has changed so much in recent years, and so there's got to be a better solution. So that's kind of how I arrived, you know, to kind of where I am now, trying to you know teach this message of different and new ways of selling in a way that is both high impact, high conversion, and in a way that doesn't make us go gross when we go out and, and try to help people with our sales motion. So that's what I do. Yeah, perfect. So you started out more, what was the field before you broke into sales? It was science, but what was it more engineering related, you said? Yeah. So if you want to get super nerdy, I was doing graduate work in chemical engineering at the University of Toronto. I was developing a multimedia computer model of toxic contaminant movement. So I was basically super science nerd, you know, trying to do stuff in, in chemistry and engineering, trying to predict toxic contaminant movement in urban areas. So that's what I started out doing before I got- No wonder sales. you pivoted to sales. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you know, it's the question, like, what are you going to do when you grow up? No one, you know, that was, it was quite a big pivot, but I'll tell you, and I say this to my kids all the time, you know, especially when you're growing up in that field, people always ask you, like, what are you going to do with that? Like, what are you going to, you know, when you graduate, like, what are you going to do with that degree? And the thing I always tell my kids, and it's actually, it's in the dedications in the book, I say to my kids, the most important thing I always tell you, and the most important skill you can develop in your whole life is learning how to learn. And through my engineering and science background, I got really good at learning how to learn, developing systems to learn how to learn. So when I got into sales, I started to develop all these systems and practices and pathways to help me become smarter about how people buy and how to align my sales motion. So that's kind of how the two tie together. Yeah, that's interesting. I like that. So you had a methodology and a frame, you built the framework and a methodology on how to actually sell as opposed to just using intuitive, right? To try the intuitive form of selling, which is what most people do, unfortunately. Yeah. And look, a lot of people are excellent sellers. They're great sellers. Uh, you know, I often refer to them as, and I talk about this in the book, unconscious sellers, meaning salespeople who are really great at what they do. And I say salespeople in air quotes because, you know, sales is the number one profession in America, but one in nine people are in sales. But there's also lots of hairdressers and personal trainers and people who, you know, have to convince and convert people every day, but don't think of themselves in sales. And many of them are really good at what they do, but they don't know why. They don't know, like, the specific tactic or the reason why their approach worked. And on the flip side, there's also lots of unconsciously bad sellers, people who are horrible at sales, have no empathy, like the, the telemarketers that you know call you every day. And you're like, how do these people still exist? It's because they're just following orders, being told what to do, and they don't know why what they're doing is so bad. Yeah. Well, I'm with you on the whole thing of I hate talking to salespeople. So you and I are kindred spirits in that perspective. <laughs> and there's probably a million reasons why, one of which you just mentioned. But Tell me, I'm going to ask you a quick question, a little bit more insight into you personally, right? Mm -hmm. So, and this is an interest, I always get interesting answers from this question because it's so different. If you could pick any business superpower, something you don't currently have, you obviously are very good at sales, right? But there's something that you wish you could do better. You see somebody else and you're like, man, I wish I could do that. What would that business superpower be? Mm, that's a good question. I'm trying to think. The business superpower. I mean, people are, you know, some people are good at sales, marketing, storytelling. Some people are really good at, you know what, actually, one of the things that I've always been actually quite impressed with, and certain people tend to have this gift, is actually reading data. You know, there's always this question as we grow our businesses. It's like, okay, what should we do more of, less of, start, stop, continue doing? And oftentimes, all we look at is, you know, what do the sales numbers say? What do the lead numbers say? But being able to really have a, like a deep sense of, insight into reading data and the forces that affect it. Some of the best leaders I've ever worked with have just amazing insights that really help them change the course and direction of their business. And so 
that to me is something I've always admired, being able to read and interpret just vast amounts of data and understand where they're coming from and how to attack on them. Yeah, it's really interesting because there's when you dive into data, there's all kinds of different data, right? You've got KPIs that are leading and then trailing and, you know, trailing isn't necessarily quite as telling as it might, you know, be for the future, but at the same time, leading data is very hard to extrapolate and understand. So I know, I think that's a really interesting superpower in the first for the Growth Experts podcast. So nobody's ever wanted to be better at reading data, but they definitely, many of them wish they were better at sales. And so today we're going to talk about sales, but we're going to talk about it from the perspective from the buyer's perspective. And we're going to talk about the science behind how people buy and why they make the decisions they make. So I think this is the perfect segue in. Take it away, unpack that for us a little bit and show us what you got. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, so oftentimes when people think about getting into the mind of the buyer, they sometimes think about the buyer journey, which is actually not what we're going to talk about today. So what does the buyer journey mean? It means that when a buyer is in the market for a product or service like yours, What's the process they go through? So they do research and then there's a demo and there's a trial and whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about at a basic fundamental level in your sales motion when it comes to messaging or running good discovery or handling objections. How do we as buyers actually think? And if I were to sum it up in one word, how do buyers act and behave? Number one, it's feelings. Everything that we do is based on feelings. There's an emotional connection you know, and, and oftentimes the way I kind of describe this to people is I say, think about the concept of when salespeople and marketers are told to sell value, then it's just sell value. What the heck does selling value mean? Well, when I tell you, and most sales leaders say sell value, what that means to you is, okay, well, what's the ROI? Like sell value. So if you're going to invest 10 grand with me, the value is you're going to make or save that much more or more money back at the end of the day, sell value. Right. The problem is that ROI and value are absolutely not the same thing. So if I were to ask you, like, what was the ROI of your last vacation or the car that you drive or the clothes that you wear? Or what was the ROI of what you made for dinner the other night? Like, you don't know the answer to these questions. Now, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Do I believe, do you believe that the ROI of your last vacation was there? Was there an ROI? Yes, there was some kind of return that you got. Maybe it's emotional existential return. But what was the ROI of taking that vacation versus going somewhere else, right? We don't make those kinds of decisions based on ROI. We make them based on feelings, how we feel about a thing. And that happens, it's quite pervasive in the business world as well. We tend to get drawn towards brands and products or services and salespeople that connect with us emotionally. And that's actually what the data bears out as well. So when I say, you know, people buy based on feelings, it is extremely pervasive. I'm happy to unpack that further for you if you like. Yeah, there's that. And this is a saying that I've heard for a long time and probably ties into this, and you might have something to say about this, is that that whole concept of people never remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel, right? And so I think this kind of goes back to, it goes back to that, right? The concept of people will never remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's funny, I was having this conversation today with another marketer, and he was saying, you know, David, what do you think the best format of uh, case studies is on my website? You know, should they be videos and audio? What should it be? And I said, you know what's funny? When it comes to the value of those case studies, it doesn't matter what they are because no one's fact checking them. No one's like reading the detail. Oh, oh, it was Dennis from, you know, from Salesforce. All they want to see is that there's some validation there. There's some social proof. It actually tends to be a very binary example. Do I feel good about, you know, making this investment or not based on what I'm seeing? So, you know, that's a big thing. People, to exactly your point, people will always remember how they feel. 
The problem, and this is kind of where it kind of falls off a bit, is that as human beings, our brains trick us into how we feel. And oftentimes we make decisions that we feel are actually based on logic and reason, but they're not. They're based on feelings. And our brain tricks us and comes up with all these logical reasons. Oftentimes, you know, people know this as like post-purchase rationalization. You bought a thing, you didn't need the thing, and you come home and your husband or wife says like, what'd you buy that for? And then you start coming up with all these reasons why you think you needed it, right? Even though you really don't. And so our brain tricks us when it comes to buying about all of kind of the stimulus and forces that, you know, impact our purchasing decisions, it actually um, conceals them. And so most people are actually not deeply in tune with these emotional forces. However, it's important as a sales and marketer, right, to understand what these forces are so you can architect your, your kind of sales and marketing motion accordingly, to not take advantage of these things, but to be more attuned to how people buy so you can architect your sales motion accordingly. All right. So for all the salespeople, that are listening and all the people that are actually selling that don't think that they're salespeople, break that down for us a little bit more from a perspective of how we might be able to leverage. If we buy into that concept that people buy based on the way it makes them feel, how can we change or make small changes to the way we're selling to, you know, to get a better end result? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you a few examples. Some will be deeper and more nerdy than others, but you know, at a very basic level, you know, we talked a little bit about this when someone asks you, what do you do? Dennis, what do you do? I mean, this is a question we get asked all of the time, like by our customers, whether it's explicitly in person or they just go visit our website and they're trying to figure out what you do. Ironically, I can go to, if you look at, let's say, the Deloitte Fast 100 companies, and I went to each of their websites and I said, you know, Dennis, I want you to look at it. I don't want you to tell me in 30 seconds or 60 seconds. What do they do? You would be challenged to figure it out. And so one of the ways that we can connect with people emotionally is to actually not talk about what we do, but rather talk about the problem that we solve for our customers, or more specifically, who the enemy is. Like, who is our enemy? We have a product or service or solution that has an enemy, the reason why we exist. Let's talk about that. So for example, my third startup was a company called Ripple, and we were acquired by Salesforce. And so if you ask me, like, well, Ripple, like, what do you do? I would have, if you wanted to know actually what we actually did, we were a software platform that helps people at work get feedback, coaching, and recognition about how they're doing. But that's not what we ultimately led with as a message. What we realized was that, what was the barrier? Why weren't people getting feedback, coaching, and recognition at work? Well, a lot of companies were running these things called the annual performance review to get people this feedback. And unfortunately, 80% of people use the word hate to describe performance reviews. So instead of leading with the product, it's a feedback, coaching, and recognition platform, we started saying, well, you know what? One of the things we realized is that people at work love feedback, but they hate performance reviews. Now, if you were in the market, if you agreed with me that my enemy of performance reviews was your enemy, you would lean in and say, what is this, David? Tell me more, right? And so I might say something like, you know what? You know, Dennis, men love to dress well, but they hate to shop. And you know what? People love to buy things, but they hate talking to salespeople. And each of these times, I can describe a product not in terms of the product itself and the solution, but rather the enemy. And when I describe it in terms of the enemy, it crystallizes emotionally in your mind a lot faster. And you lean in and say, this is interesting, tell me more, right? Versus smiling and saying, that's nice and going on with the rest of your day. So that's how emotion can manifest in just a very simple way as far as messaging goes. Yeah, so it's really funny. I mean, you could leverage that in your elevator pitch, right? Your 60 second elevator pitch, you meet somebody at a networking event, you meet, so you're introduced to somebody, you're wherever the case may be, where they ask you what you do, you know, speaking in, in that type of a framework and those terms 
is going to have typically it have a much more lasting impression than the typical gunk that you hear come out of a you know somebody's mouth, which is all feature product driven. Absolutely. Well, you know, especially on the marketing side, oftentimes we get excited about our products and services. And I was working with a company, I won't mention the name, but they're a great company, been around for a long time, very successful. And we were talking about how they communicate with their customers. And I asked them, what was the last marketing you know, email you sent out? And they said, oh, it was all about our version 8.0 and all of the features. I'm like, how did that do? Like, not that well. Like, because you know why? Because people don't give a crap about your features, right? They, they care about like, what's the problem that this helps me solve? Because I walk around every day thinking about these problems. I'm not thinking about the solution, right? And so it's a great way of really just cutting through the noise when everyone's talking about products and features to get people to emotionally buy in. Yeah, perfect. All right, so what else? Where else? That was a great example. I think that was a really perfect example, that elevator pitch or when people ask you what you do. I think that was a really perfect example. Give us some other examples, you know, that maybe you've experienced, whether in some of your earlier startups or whether it be through Salesforce or wherever it was. Yeah. I mean, so I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, one of the things I like to talk about is how we use data. So data can be very persuasive in terms of getting people to move. However, there's a difference between, you know, how we use data in a very compelling emotional way and in a way that just kind of makes people sit back and smile and say, oh, you know, that's nice. So let's say, for example, I had a solution that saves people time. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people listening out there have some kind of solution, B2B solution. And one of the benefits is it saves people time, right? And so let's say by implementing your solution, I could save, I don't know, five hours a week, okay? I could either represent, I could represent that a couple different ways. I can say, my solution can save you, you know, 10% of your time every week. It can give you 10% of your time back, or it can give you 7% of your time back. Or I can say, this solution will actually give you five hours back every week or 10 hours back every week. Let's assume that those two statements are mathematically equivalent. I'm expressing one as a percentage, one as a whole number. What's interesting is that the science and data shows us that we tend to get more convinced, it's more persuasive to use the whole numbers because I can picture what five hours of my time looks like. I cannot picture what 5% of my time looks like, right? And so when you're using data to draw contrast for your customers around the current state versus future state, that's great. And actually, a lot of people don't even do that. Using data is, is extremely important. But if I use data that resonates with you more emotionally, that you can actually picture in your head, you're more likely to convert and make that decision a lot quicker. Yeah, I love that. I think, you know, before we hit record, you mentioned an example like that. And it really hit home with me. And you were talking about, you know, hey, listen, the facts are, guys, we're in the middle of this crisis with coronavirus and it's affecting the entire world. And the example you gave, which really just, hit the nail right on the head and I think will really help people was in and around that vaccine example. Can you share that really quick? Because I think people, it will really concrete it in people's minds. Yeah. For, so yeah, we're in Corona land now. So like, imagine I said, hey, good news, we found a, a vaccine for the coronavirus. The bad news is that it's going to, for every one person that takes that, or every, sorry, 100,000 people that get that vaccine, one person is going to die. Or what if I told you like one child's going to die? Okay. So one out of every 100,000 children are going to die. But if I said, well, you know what? We have this new vaccine and the only the good news is it's, it works. The bad news is it's going to kill 0.001% of all the children who take it, right? Those two statements might be mathematically equivalent, right? But one seems a lot more you know, emotionally pervasive because you can picture one child. You can't picture 0.0001% of anything, right? 
And the science and data shows that people are more persuaded by these numbers that they can picture in their head. And in fact, you know, when you actually look at the data, and I'm not saying that the news outlets or CNN or whatever is wrong to, to, you know, to kind of show data in this way, but when they're saying, oh, we have 100 cases, 1,000 cases, like 5,000 cases, we can picture 100, 5,000 people. I know that, you know, the, that the Scotiabank Arena, you know, in, in Toronto can seat 19,000. Like, I can picture these numbers. But if I were to say, you know, oh, it's only 0.004% of the population, you'd be like, oh, like, that's no big deal, right? So when we hear things expressed as whole numbers or meaningful numbers, it has a big impact. And as you can, you know, see with what's going on in, you know, kind of virus land now, people are taking these small numbers, which are important, but they are magnified in their mind because of how they're presented. What's really interesting about that is that, you know, that perf- that example right there, you know, we're talking about, you know, right now there's a lot of politics going on, particularly here in the U.S. about trying to create these stimulus bills and all these different, all the legislation and acts and, and emergency things that they're doing. And what's really funny that kind of came to me, not to make this political, but if somebody, you know, the way you frame that data can have a drastic difference in how people's perceptions and what people are going through right now. That perfect example, if a politician wanted to get, you know, get people's approval on this vaccine, he would probably use the percentage perspective. But if he was on the other side of the aisle and he didn't want to approve it and he opposed it, he would use that individual child, right? So you can use data different ways to massage the results that you want. Now, we're talking about this in a very non-business format. We're talking about things that impact people's lives. But on a sales perspective, it can be used the same way. And it's probably just as important, right? So I really love that example. I really love that concept of, and it's a very simple concept that anybody can apply to their business literally in the next five minutes if you just give it a little bit of thought. So I love that. All right, what else? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So diving into a little bit more of the kind of empathy related, you know, questions and tactics. So one of the things that, you know, oftentimes when we're trying to do good sales discovery, so we're talking to a customer about their challenges, we're really asking them some like very intimate details about their business. Now, one of the things I I talk about in my training to salespeople is I say, you're not a doctor, okay? When you come into the doctor's office, you have a problem. The doctor, first of all, they give you like a, a, you know, a clipboard with a questionnaire that you fill out, you know, in truth you know, sight unseen. And then they come into the examination room and they ask you these very intimate questions and details about your personal life that you answer typically like very immediately and truthfully. Okay. As a sales and marketing person that we don't get to enjoy that same level of disclosure. Right. And so when sales marketing people ask us questions, what's your budget? Who's the signer? What's the decision-making process? When are you looking to move forward? These are things that salespeople and marketing people over the years have been conditioned and trained to ask. The problem is that whenever we ask these questions of our customers, in the back of their head, they're always fearful. They're always wondering, okay, like, why, why are they asking? You know, so if I ask you, we were talking earlier, if I ask you, Dennis, what's your budget for this? You don't want to tell me because you're worried that once you tell me, I'm going to change my price or moderate my approach based on what you tell me. So you're either going to tell me nothing, you're going to say, oh, I don't know, we don't have a budget, or you're going to lowball me, or you're going you're to give me some incorrect information. And so one of the simplest tactics. So this is, you know, going into these customer conversations empathetically and understanding that people are sometimes weary of telling us these kind of very intimate details about, you know, their business is to make them feel comfortable, right? And so rather than have the in, what I'm going to do with that information be a mystery, why don't you tell them? So here's the very simple example. Whenever you ask a question where you feel the answer might be considered contentious, 
on the part of your customer? What's the signing process? What does the budget look like? I want you to append your question with the phrase, the reason I ask is because. Now this works for all sorts of reasons. The word because is actually, I have a video about this on my YouTube channel, is a very powerful trigger word. It's often referred to as the most powerful word in sales because it tells people, oh, a reason's coming. And if you say, hey, the reason I ask is because, and you give someone a good reason, it makes them feel more comfortable answering. So for example, I may say something like, you know, hey Dennis, what's your budget for this project? Uh, the reason I ask is because I speak to lots of customers like you and sometimes they don't have budget set up for this type of project. And if that's the case with you, no worries at all. I, it's something I might be able to help you create for your company. But I'm, I'm just curious, do you, did you have a budget in mind? Now, you're gonna feel more comfortable answering that question because now I'm giving you a sense for why I'm asking. If I asked you, uh, you know, Dennis, how much money do you make <laughs> you know, in your job? That's not something you're gonna volunteer, but you're also wondering why I ask. If I said, well, you know, Dennis, it looks awesome what you do. And I, I was actually thinking about doing what you do one day, but I'm, you know, I have a great job now and I don't wanna take a pay cut to do what you do. Am I taking a pay cut? That's why I wanna know. You feel more comfortable. So that sense of empathy and approaching all of these kind of conversations with that deep sense of empathy. So as a buyer, from a buyer's perspective, can be tremendously impactful from a sales and marketing perspective. Yeah, I think I think you the example of the doctor example is a perfect example. And I think that's sometimes, unfortunately, how salespeople, you know, they feel like they're going to just, everybody's just going to give them this, they're going to, it's going to be like an open book, right? And it just doesn't work that way. So I think approaching it with some empathy, you know, is, is just a, a very simple way to just put them at ease. Again, you're probably not going to get all the answers you ask for, but your probability of getting those answers is now stacked a little bit more in your favor by taking that type of perspective. So I like that. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, anything else you want to add before we close it out? We got to wrap up here in a minute or so. Anything in particular you'd like to add beforehand? No, I mean, look, you know, part of my goal is to, to see what I can do to help and elevate the sales profession because I love sales and it bothers me that when you tell people you're in sales, people think of you as the enemy. So the only thing I would leave you with here is that if you're in sales or, or marketing, you're a non-sales seller, whenever you're about to execute a tactic or an approach, just ask yourself, hey, would this thing work on me if I was on the buying side? Because I think if we all did that, we would actually be able to make people much more comfortable you know, with our sales and marketing outreach and improve kind of the sales and marketing landscape for everyone. So I think a little empathy, especially with what's going on in the world now, can go a long way. Yeah, internalizing that I think is a really good piece of advice. All right, two rapid fire questions before we go. What's your favorite growth tool, like a SaaS product or an app, something that you use to grow your business? Yeah, I mean, I love Zoom, you know, as we're on now. And, and one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of video is that it helps remove the layer of abstraction between people. And I actually think one of the best things that's going to come out of this whole coronavirus thing is that a lot of people are doing more video calls. And when we're on video, you know, it, when we got the kids and the dog and like everything going haywire, it's deeply humanizing for all of us. And so I'm a big fan of using video in general because it breaks down those emotional barriers and it makes people more open to, to talking. So I love, I love video and, and Zoom for that. Love it. So besides your book, what would be one book that you would recommend to the audience? Maybe something that's helped you along on your journey. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite sales books, I think I actually have it uh, on the shelf here, is uh, To Sell as Human by Dan Pink. Now, of course, I can't pick it out. You know, the, um, oh, here it is. To Sell as Human by Dan Pink. This is a really great sales book. You know, Dan is a great author and he talks a lot about just kind of like the evolution of the sales profession. There's a lot of data, a lot of science, but it's a, a sales book for everyone and it gives everyone an appreciation for what it's like 
to be in sales, to think about sales, and really humanizes, if I can use that, you know, uh, the sales profession. So I, I, I highly recommend his book. Perfect. So listen, let everybody know if they can get a copy of your book, Sell the Way You Buy, connect with you, uh, learn a little bit more about what you do with your coaching and consulting business, and then we'll wrap it up for today. Yeah. I mean, so the easiest way to find out everything is just to go to my website, cerebralselling.com. I also have a YouTube channel, Cerebral Selling, and I give away everything for free. So, you know, you don't have to register for anything. All my articles, videos are out there to help. There's a link to the book as well. So cerebralselling.com, great way. You can also hit me up on LinkedIn. And the book is called Sell the Way You Buy. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indigo, wherever you get your books. And uh, super excited for, uh, for it to be out. Awesome. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. I'll put all those links in the show notes. Have an awesome day. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Right on. Thanks so much, Dennis. Listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in. I truly appreciate your time. If you're enjoying the podcast, then do me a huge favor. Click the subscribe button now and please leave me a review. It would mean a lot to me.